Father, as we come to your word today, use it to accomplish your purposes in our life. Use it to nourish us. Use it to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 9. We're going to continue studying John chapter 9. We covered verses 1 to 5 a couple weeks ago, uh, but that was only part of it. Uh, There's a lot more that we didn't cover in those five verses, so we're going to be covering those five verses a second time today, looking at some more of the details. So if you have your Bibles open, please turn to John chapter 9. A few years ago, um, there were a pair of researchers from Harvard who, uh, from the psychology department at Harvard, who conducted this fascinating experiment in which they demonstrated something that's called selective attention. It's called selective attention. Selective attention is what happens when you are so focused on one thing that you miss other things that are going on that you otherwise should be aware of. So these Harvard researchers made a film. Uh, They filmed a bunch of students passing basketballs to one another as they went around in circular motions. And those who participated, the subjects of this study, were instructed to, quote, watch the video and to uh, count the number of passes the players wearing white shirts made. Uh, But that wasn't actually what the researchers were interested in. They didn't want to know if they were able to count the number of passes that were made. Instead, they wanted to see how aware these, uh, these subjects would be of other things happening in the video and going on around them. And so in the middle of this video, a woman dressed in a gorilla suit comes out for nine seconds, beats her chest for a minute, and walks out. What the researchers found was that more than half of the subjects who watched this video didn't even notice the woman in the gorilla suit. They didn't even notice that she was there. And and you might be wondering, how in the world could that possibly be? It's because the people weren't looking at that. It's because the people were looking for something else. And so they didn't even notice something that was completely out of place when it came into the screen. That's what psychologists call selective attention. It's really a a very fascinating psychological phenomenon, but the Bible actually tells us that the same thing happens with unregenerate, unbelieving humanity toward God. That's one of the reasons that the Bible refers to people who are lost as being blind. Uh, Being blind is an illustration of spiritual blindness, Uh, because spiritually speaking, humanity by nature is blind. Humanity by nature is blind to the fact that we are by nature in bondage to sin. Humanity is by nature blind to the fact that we are sinners who need a Savior. And humanity is by nature blind to the fact that God has provided a Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we aren't only blind by nature. We're also blind by choice, spiritually speaking. And when I say that, I mean nobody seeks for God. And Scripture tells us that that is a willful inaction. 
The blind man that Jesus encounters outside of the temple in Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 9 is no exception to this, by the way. The ninth chapter starts out with him being not only physically blind, unable to physically see, but he's spiritually blind as this chapter begins as well. How do we know that? How do we know that he starts out spiritually blind? It's because he hasn't sought God. He hasn't sought Jesus Jesus is coming by and he doesn't call out for Jesus to help him even though he's seated as a beggar right outside of the temple and surely he's heard all the commotion that we saw take place between chapters 7 and 8 at the Feast of Booths. His only hope, this beggar, this blind beggar's only hope is the same as everybody else's only hope and that is that Jesus would come to him. Because he hasn't gone to Jesus. He hasn't sought Jesus. Now, when you look at John's entire gospel testimony, there are a total of seven major miracles in John's gospel. There's the changing of the water into wine at the wedding feast back in chapter 2. There's the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4. There's the healing of the crippled man by the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. There's the feeding of the 5,000 families in chapter 6. Jesus walking on water in chapter 6. Jesus giving sight to the man who was born blind here in chapter 9, and then we're going to get to the raising of Lazarus from the grave. Seven major miracles, seven signs that John uses to persuade his readers to not only understand who Jesus is, but to do something with that understanding, namely, believe in him, thereby receiving eternal life. Now, John tells us, that if he wanted to write all the miracles of Jesus down, it would take more paper than the world could possibly hold. So he records seven, seven major miracles. He apparently believed that these were the most significant in terms of what he's trying to accomplish. What's he trying to accomplish? He wants his readers to believe and to receive eternal life. So he's giving us these seven miracles toward, as a means to that end. And each of the miracles, if you look at them, they're not an end in and of themselves. Each one of the miracles that Jesus performs in the book of John is what you would call an object lesson. An object lesson is giving you an illustration in person, like a living parable. They're, they're each communicating some kind of spiritual truth. And as we study the sixth sign, what we need to understand is that it's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of salvation. Now, we've started to look at the man who was born blind and at the differences between uh, you know, the reaction that Jesus had toward him versus the reaction that the disciples had toward him versus you know, the way that the Pharisees saw him. Um, but today we're going to be looking again at those five verses, but we're going to be extending that to verse 12. So we'll be looking at verses 1 to 12. And the point of our passage today is this. It's that Jesus saves us not only in order to bring us into a right standing with God through him, but also in order that we might glorify him by telling others about him. Jesus saves us not only to bring us into right standing with God through himself, but also in order that we may glorify him by telling others about him. 
Now we'll start by looking at these five verses that we've already begun to look at. Uh, We considered some important details about this scene, but there are a few more that I think we must consider. So let's look at verses 1 to 5 as we begin. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned or, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, the first thing that we need to understand when we, when we consider this, when we look at this, this blind man, is that his condition isn't random. His condition isn't random. I, I'm sure that it felt like it was. I'm sure it felt like it was random. You know, the suffering often does. I mean, how many times have you, you know, suffered from something, anything, and the question that you're asking is, why did it have to be me? It just seems so random, right? And I'm sure that this man's case was no different. Because there's no indication that it was caused by anything that he or his parents had done. If you'd asked his parents uh, why he was born blind, don't you think they would have said something like, well, those things just happen. Sometimes people are, are, are born into suffering conditions. And, and I'm, I'm certain that this man's condition seemed random and just simply unfortunate. But when we read this much of the passage, we realize that it isn't random at all, but rather we're confronted with the reality that he had this condition so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why he has this condition. Even though we don't know how old he is, say he's 20, 30 years old, for that much time he probably got to the point where he just figured it's random, you know, these things happen and I was just unlucky. God had given this condition to this man so that for thousands of years, people would see this vivid contrast between the Pharisees who were unbelieving in the previous, uh, previous chapter and this man who would believe. See, the Pharisees didn't benefit at all from Christ's mission of seeking and saving the lost, but this blind man is a monument of God's grace. This blind man is a picture of all who do benefit from Christ's mission of seeking and saving the lost, who once were blind but now can see. But at this point, this man who was born blind is only a picture of man in his natural condition. Blind. Spiritually blind. Lost in sin. Not seeking aid from God. And needing God to be the one to take the initiative with him. So the first way that we see this is where the blind man is located. Where the blind man is located. Where is he? He's right outside the temple. He's outside the temple. What does the temple represent? It represents God's dwelling place. It represents the place where man and God have fellowship and communion. It represents a place in which peace between God and man is both established and nurtured. 
And this man is sitting outside. In fact, the reason he's uh, seated outside is because he's not allowed in. God had warned the sons of Aaron, the, the high priests, that if any of them were blind, they were not to perform any of the duties of the priests. In fact, they weren't even allowed into the sanctuary. They weren't even allowed to come up near to the altar. Leviticus chapter 21 verse 18 says, For no one who has a defect shall approach. A blind man, or a lame man, or he who has a disfigured face, or any deformed limb. He goes on to say in verse 23, he shall, uh, of the priests, he shall not go in the veil or come near the altar because he has a defect, so that he will not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Now, when we hear that, when we just look at that uh, at face value, and, and we aren't looking beyond what, what it just says, and not like, why did he say it? It might seem very cruel and unjust that God would say, no, no blind people are allowed in. I understand that. That seems cruel. It seems unfair. But God, by forbidding anyone with a defect to come in, or any priests with a defect to even come near the altar, he's giving a message behind the message. And that is that only someone who is unblemished can approach him. Only someone who is clean can approach him. It's designed to be a picture of the way that sin has alienated us from God. It reminds us then of our need for a Savior, of our need for an unblemished, sinless, perfect, righteous Savior to serve as the mediator between sinful man and holy God. So the blind man is outside of the temple. He's not allowed in. And that's a significant detail because it's a picture of man's sinful condition. Sin has disqualified man from approaching God. Without a sinless mediator, we have no means of drawing near to God to receive His blessings in Christ. Adam and Eve were cast outside of the Garden of Eden because of their sin. And they were forbidden from returning for the same reason. Because they were fallen and thus disqualified from approaching God. In the words of John Owen, quote, because of sin, no man in his natural state has fellowship with God. God is light and we are darkness. What communion has light with darkness? End quote. So being outside of the temple is a picture of every son of Adam in his natural condition, apart from God's grace. As surely as the Scriptures tell us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's the first way we see it. Secondly, we see that this blind man is a picture of sinful, lost humanity in the sense that even when Jesus was right in front of him, even when Jesus was near, the blind man could not see him. He couldn't see anything, right? He had no, no way of knowing that Jesus was there. But at the same time, he also had no category for what that would even mean for somebody to be coming close, like what that would look like, right? Some of you might remember that I have no sense of smell. 
right? So, so for me, a, a sweaty sock smells exactly like a rose. Uh, they smell exactly the same. Now, sometimes Christina will smell something, and so we'll start talking about the way that something smells, and I'll ask her, hey, could you describe that for me? But she can't because I have no categories to compare it to. I have no point of reference with, with which I can say, okay, you know, so it's kind of like this or that. I, I have no idea what it's like to smell. It's impossible for her to, therefore, explain to me how something smells. All I know is that the first smell I will ever experience will be the second I enter heaven's gates. I'll take it. But likewise, if you had tried to describe a beautiful sunset or a beautiful field, a meadow, to this blind man. The most he could say is, that's nice, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't have categories for understanding what that even means. So it makes no sense to me. And that is mankind's natural condition as well, isn't it? Mankind, by nature, because we're fallen... We are blind to the beauty and the glory of Christ. We don't even have a category for it by nature. He not only, natural man not only doesn't understand spiritual truth, but he is altogether unable to even do so. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Spiritual blindness. No, no categories to compare. No, no understanding at all. That's precisely why Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What must happen in order for one to see the glory of the kingdom of God? He must be regenerated. He must be born again. He must be born from above. But when you're born... Physically, are you active? Is it your fault that you were born? No, we don't cause our own birth. We are passive in our birth. We rely on the initiative of the one who is giving birth to us. And the same is implied in the the spiritual sense of the term born again or born from above. The natural man cannot see the kingdom of God and he cannot understand spiritual truths. He is blind to them even when they're standing right there in front of his face. Third, not only could this blind man not heal himself, but nobody else in the whole world could help him either. There are no cures for blindness. And even if technology were to create a means of doing so, it would still require something being done to the blind person. They would still have to be passive in that cure. But in this man's time and in this man's situation, nobody could help him. Nobody but God. And that's our condition by nature as well. We are in bondage to sin and we cannot help ourselves. Only God can help us. That brings us to the fourth way that he's a picture of unregenerate, unbelieving humanity. Because not only can he not help himself, but he's not even calling out to God for help. He is simply resigned to the fact that he has always dwelled in darkness and that's all he knows, so it's all he wants. Not only does he not know any differently, but 
He doesn't want differently. He's not outside of the temple begging for God to help him. He's outside of the temple begging for alms, begging for for money. And that is a picture of humanity. Apart from God's grace, not only can we not help ourselves, but we don't want help, and thus we don't seek help from God for our spiritual condition. But all of this is setting the stage for this incredible miracle, the sixth sign that John gives us. It sets the stage for God to be glorified in extending His irresistible grace to this unseeking man. Jesus doesn't come up and ask him, hey, do you you want to be healed? He just comes up and does it. He doesn't ask him. He does it of his own prerogative as an illustration, as a picture of God's electing sovereign grace. And, And this is the only reason that God has ever saved anyone. His sovereign electing grace. This is humanity's only hope. It's not... Our hope is not in man's ability to to help himself or to save himself or in man's desire to, to seek God. It's rather in God's sovereign desire to be glorified in seeking those who don't seek him and transforming them from being children of darkness into children of light, giving them a new nature from being children of wrath to being children of his sovereign electing grace. Now, someone might object and say, well, what about free will? My response to that is, what about it? I mean, everybody believes that we have free will, but we also understand that even if you have the strongest free will in the world, if you're blind, what are you going to do to help yourself? You can't will yourself into seeing if you're blind. That's just not the way it works. And the same is true of spiritual blindness. Yes, you have free will, but it will not cure your spiritual blindness. Friends, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that the reason that I stand up here week in and week out, the reason I come here and preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the same reason, the exact same reason, that Jesus stood before this blind man at the gate of the temple. It's because God uses the preaching, the proclamation of his word to do for sinners what Jesus is going to do for this blind man. Opening eyes and healing him. Giving him spiritual sight and spiritual life. Now, the way that Jesus heals this blind man is kind of weird. It, It strikes most people as at least being pretty strange and maybe even confusing. So let's look at how Jesus heals him. Verses 6 and 7. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing Now, the reason that this is weird is because we understand that neither spit nor nor mud have healing properties for for blindness. So there are a lot of theories about the significance and the symbolism of the spit here and, and the clay. But I think it's safe to say that one thing that everybody can agree on is that this just seems very strange to us. 
After all, I mean, if Jesus wanted to heal this man, couldn't he have just said the word? Of course he could have. Couldn't he have just, you know, if he wanted to, to give some kind of object lesson, couldn't he have reached out and just touched the man? Of course. He, he could have said, be healed, and the man would have been healed. He could have just reached out and touched him, and the man would have been healed if that's what Jesus wanted to do. So why didn't he do that? Why didn't Jesus choose one of those types of options, simpler options? And the reason, again, is because this is a picture of our salvation in some way. Because we understand that, that spit and, and mud and, and clay, if you put those on a blind man's eyes, they're not going to do anything. If, if you and I do that, it, nothing's going to happen, except they're going to have clay on their eyes. So how is this a picture of our salvation? And again, there are a lot of theories about that. There are a lot of theories about how this is a picture of our salvation. But I think one thing that everyone can agree on is that the idea of somebody spitting on the ground and making mud with their spit, that's going to take a lot of spit, by the way, is kind of gross. You're going to put that on somebody's eyes? That's kind of revolting. In fact, you might even say it's offensive. Is it possible then that this is an illustration of the foolishness and the offensive nature of the gospel? I'd say that's at least one possibility, but I think I, I, I would go with that. I, I like that explanation. That's, that's one possibility. Another explanation for the clay has to do with the fact that the man was made from dust. Uh, John Calvin explains this view, even though this wasn't John Calvin's view per se. Uh, he writes this, he says, quote, Just as man was at first made of clay, so Christ used clay in restoring his eyes to show that he had the same power over a part of the body that the Father had exercised in creating the whole man, end quote. And again, that's, that's possible. The view I take, though, is kind of a combination. I like that first one, and I like the same view that Calvin had. Uh, and that view is that Jesus was highlighting and intensifying the man's blindness so as to kind of underline and accentuate and, and magnify the glory of the cure. A.W. Pink explains it. He says this, quote, It symbolized Christ presenting himself in the flesh before the eyes of Israel. Doctrinally, it prefigured the Lord pressing upon the sinner his lost condition and need of a Savior. The placing of clay on his eyes emphasizes our blindness, end quote. So of the instruction to, uh, to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, Pink writes this. He says, quote, This intimates our need of turning to the word and applying it to ourselves, for it is the entrance of God's words which alone give light, end quote. In other words, it seems possible that Jesus put this, this clay, this, this mud, on the man's eyes so that the man would have something to wash off. So in order for him to experience what Jesus had done for him, what did he need to do? He needed to obey Jesus. Jesus told him to do something. He needed to do it if he wanted to see what Jesus had done. One of the main keys to understanding this part of the passage, this part of the story, is the fact that John tells us that the pool's name means sent. That's, it's significant that he tells us what that word means. He could have just left it as it is. I mean, we, we talk about geographical places, and you know, they, they might have a foreign name. 
We don't care about what that name means necessarily, right? So the fact that John tells us it means sent is important. Now when we think of that word, when we think of the word sent, what's the significance of that? Because there were other pools and there were other bodies of water in the area that Jesus could have said, go, go to this one. He could have said, go to the pool of Bethesda. That's also in Jerusalem outside the gate. So why this one? Well, if we consider what Jesus said multiple times, by the way, in the previous chapter, it makes sense. In the previous chapter, he claimed to have been sent by God, the Father, multiple times. Back in chapter 8, verse 16, he says, But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Verse 18, I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. Verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Sent, 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 sent. And then it continues into chapter 9, verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. The point is, it's so easy to miss it because it's such a small word. The point is that Jesus is the sent one. He was sent by the Father. When Jesus instructs this man to go to the pool named sent, the message is this. The message is, if the spiritually blind are washed in the one who was sent, they will see. If the spiritually blind are washed in the one who was sent, they will gain spiritual sight. Now, one of the things that we've seen, one of the themes, I guess, that we've seen running through our study of John, there's kind of this theme of water that runs through the book. Think back to Jesus' first miracle, which was when he did what? You know, back in chapter 2, what did he do? He turned water into wine. In chapter 4, Jesus goes to the Samaritan woman by a well, which is where you draw water from, and he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He goes on to say, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Going into chapter 5, we read about Jesus healing this crippled man who had placed his hope in what? Earthly water. The Pool of Bethesda. Chapter 7, Jesus cries out during the, the water-pouring ceremony at the Feast of Booths, uh, saying, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. See, there's this theme of water that flows through the book of John. Now, we need to understand a little bit of geography if we're really going to grasp the full significance of this. Richard Phillips explains in his commentary that, quote, the water in this pool flowed through the temple mount. The temple was where the sacrifices were offered, where sinners came to God through the blood shed for forgiveness. Jesus is telling us that if we want to escape the darkness, we must wash ourselves in the pool that Jesus was sent by God 
to provide. End quote. Have you done that, friend? Have you done that? Have you, have you put on, have you put real faith, real confident trust in the proverbial pool that God has provided in sending his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for sinners to be washed clean by? Because the waters of every other pool are filthy. If you bathe in the waters of any other pool, you will come out dirtier than you went in. Bathe in them and you are worse off than when you started. That is, if you are trusting in your own goodness, if you're trusting in merit, your own righteousness for for right standing with God, if you're trusting in a worldly philosophy for salvation, you are banking on the wrong things. You are cleansing in waters that only make you more filthy in God's sight. But if you are cleansed by the pool of water that is Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Him and Him alone for your salvation, just one drop is enough to make you clean. See, we're all dirty, and we all need to be cleansed. But Jesus perfectly upheld the law of God. Why does that matter? Because we haven't. You haven't done it. You haven't upheld the law of God. I haven't upheld the law of God. We've all fallen short. All have sinned and have thus fallen short of the glory of God of God's perfect standards of righteousness. Only Jesus has upheld God's perfect standard of righteousness. And so what you need is for Jesus to give you His perfect righteousness, and you need Him to wash away your sin. And only He can. And when you bathe in that pool, the pool of the one sent by God, When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he clothes you in Jesus' own righteousness and he is faithful to cleanse you from all of your sin. Think about this blind man. Do you see that he didn't even ask any questions? Jesus puts this mud on his face and he doesn't say, whoa, whoa, what are you doing there, Jesus? Uh, go to the pool of Siloam. Why, why, why there? There's a closer pool for me to go to. Why that one? He doesn't ask any questions. What does he do? He simply believes Jesus and obeys. And that's what he's calling you to do today as well, friends. To trust and obey. It may seem as foolish to the perishing as the method by which Jesus chose to clean this man. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto the salvation of sinners. Listen very carefully, friends. God has only one way of cleansing and saving sinners, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and as we're going to be seeing at the end of the month when we do our Reformation Sunday study on uh, Soli Deo Gloria, and it's all for the glory of God alone. We are not saved by works. Don't get me wrong. We are not saved by our works. We're saved by Jesus' works. We're not saved by our works. And yet, the faith that saves 
is a faith that does work. We aren't saved by our good works. We're saved for good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. See, true saving faith produces good works in our lives. It's, it's the fruit of salvation, but it's not the root. True saving faith obeys. It, it obeys imperfectly. It obeys even inconsistently. But there's no such thing as a saving faith that remains in steadfast disobedience toward God. By God's grace working in us, faith manifests itself. We bear fruit through obedience. And this story illustrates that for us. Have you believed Jesus in that way? If you haven't, I urge you to follow the example that's set by the blind man who, even though he was physically blind, has received spiritual sight. See, the person who refuses to be cleansed in the means that God has provided in Christ Jesus, that person is blinder than this blind man was. As a result of his believing obedience, he discovers that Jesus had healed him. Not only did he see spiritually, but now he could also see physically as well. But there's another reason that Jesus sends this man away to the pool of Siloam, and that is so that others may see him as well. Jesus saves us not only in order to bring us into a right, understand, a right standing with God through him, but also in order that we may glorify him by telling others about him. Let's read verses 8 to 12. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Now, you want to talk about blindness. These people who were perfectly capable of seeing and had seen this blind man, formerly blind man um, now, but they had seen him for years begging outside of the temple. Suddenly, they see him and they can't believe their eyes. They start thinking that that can't be him. This guy sees, the, the, the beggar that I walked by who knows how many times, that guy couldn't see. This guy sees, so this can't be him. This must be somebody who, who just looks similar to him. Even though they've walked by him who knows how many times, more times than they could possibly count, suddenly they're doubting their own ability to trust what they're seeing. Spiritually, what a good place to be, right? And yet, the man, the blind, formerly blind man, he... And isn't it interesting, by the way, that John never tells us what his name is? And yet this man, he continues insisting that he is indeed the one that they thought he was. He, he used to be the blind man who used to sit by the side of the road begging. 
And, and they want an explanation for that, don't they? they? They want to know how exactly could this have happened to you? And he provides one for them. He tells them about Jesus. He tells them what changed him, what made the difference in his life. He tells them about what Jesus did for him. Now let me be clear about this, friends. When God saves a person, people should notice. There should be a stark contrast of before and after. There should be such a difference in your life that people start wondering what in the world has happened to you. Nobody could argue with the fact that this man had been given sight, and we should be able to say the same thing of every convert. That they once were blind, and now they see, and seeing changes everything spiritually. You once were blind to, to, uh, to sin, now you see it. You once were blind to your need for a Savior, but now it's plain as day to you. You once were blind to the, to the worthlessness of pursuing first and foremost the things of the world, but that is no longer the case. You once were blind to the glory of Christ and to the fact that nothing in this world compares to following and being devoted to Him. But now, you see, if we were to compare who you were before Christ saved you with who you are today, who you became after God saved you, would we see any difference? Because we should. I'd say indeed we must see a difference because the person who is cleansed by Christ is transformed. They are literally not the same person any longer. They don't have the same nature anymore. They were born with a fallen, sinful nature, and they received a new nature, a new creation with a new nature. Doesn't act like the old creation with the old nature. In Second Peter chapter one verse four, Peter says, "He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature." Maybe my favorite illustration of this, this before and after effect that should take place in the life of every convert. I think my favorite example of this is found in Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, this is what we read. They, the, Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he, Jesus of course, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had been often bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. That's before Jesus. So Jesus confronts him, and he casts legion out of the man and into a herd of swine, and then we see this man after Jesus healed him. We read this. We, we, we read their herdsmen, the herdsmen who owned the swine that, uh, that Legion was cast into and the swine all went into the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down 
clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And listen to the response of the people to that. And they became frightened. The people start begging Jesus to leave. They're they're scared. And so he does. He does. He goes back to the boat. And as this man who had been possessed by legion tries to get into the boat, Jesus says, no, you're not coming with us. He refuses to allow this man to come with them. He instructs him and said, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And Mark adds a final note of this man writing, and he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Later in the book, when we go back to Decapolis, everybody's heard about him. The the masses are, are crowding Jesus when he comes back. Why? Because this man went and told people what Jesus had done for him. Jesus saves us not only in order to bring us into a right standing with God through him, but also in order that we might glorify him by telling others about him. We see that this man who was possessed by legion is similar to the blind man. They had the same mission, didn't they? And the same mission has been given to you and me, friends. We must tell people about Jesus. After healing the blind man, Jesus disappears from public ministry. Even the blind man isn't sure where Jesus went. So so maybe the right question isn't, where is Jesus now? Maybe the question is, can he heal me too? And the fact of the matter is that Jesus is still giving spiritual sight to spiritually blind people today. And the preaching of the gospel is the means by which God accomplishes that end. So where is Jesus today? He was crucified, died, and was buried, and he rose again on the third day. And after spending 40 days with his disciples, he ascended into heaven. Today he's seated at the right hand of the Father, where he is reigning over his kingdom, and where he is interceding day and night for his people. His people, you and me, his people have been entrusted with the responsibility to do the same thing that the man possessed by legion and this blind man were entrusted to do. And that is with the responsibility to shine the light that they've been given before men. To be a light in the darkness of the world. Now, you and I don't have the power to give somebody physical sight or spiritual sight. But we can do what the formerly blind man did. We can tell them about the one who found us in our blindness and healed us. If you've been redeemed by Christ, you have been redeemed for a purpose. There is a purpose to your life. There is a reason for your new life in Christ, and that is to use the life that you have been given for the glory of Jesus Christ, and to do so by shining your light in the darkness for all to see. Jesus saves us not only in order to bring us into right standing with God through him, but also in order that we might glorify him by telling others 
about him. And so to that end, may he grant us much grace and many opportunities to share the good news of Jesus, all for the glory of him who effectually called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. That though we were outside of any possibility of experiencing fellowship with you, even though we were poor beggars who were spiritually blind, who didn't seek you, who didn't want you, you sought us. You sought us and you healed us. You allowed us to see our need for grace. You allowed us to see our need for a Savior. And you showed us that Christ is that Savior. He's the one that you have sent to reconcile those who believe in him with yourself. And we thank you that by your grace alone, we may be counted among that number. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be like a light shining in the darkness. Especially as we look out now and we just see that the darkness is getting darker still. Oh God, you have put us in this place, in this time, for that reason. To be a light. So give us grace to accomplish that purpose. Give us conviction. Give us boldness in order that we may bring, money, bring much glory to Christ and many people may hear about him and be healed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.